Let me add my welcome to that that you've already heard. Welcome to Worship and Word with Apex today. I don't know about you, but um, I'm particularly excited about the way that the family ministry and all of the team of people that surround it are working and serving us right now. And uh, just remember to uh, affirm them and encourage them in their work because they're doing a tremendous job right now. Today, we're going to look at the third of these stories of lostness. The third of the stories that Jesus told to a particular audience. An audience that was pretty well divided between the religious and the rebellious. There were tax collectors and sinners. There were Bible teachers and professional clergy, all in the same crowd. And the professional clergy and the Bible scholars were somewhat surprised by the way that Jesus was interacting with the tax collectors and sinners, the way that he was interacting with those who were clearly on the margins of faith and really in the borderlands of society. And so Jesus told these three stories, the story of the lost sheep that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the story of the lost coin that Jason did such a great job helping us to understand last week, and then this week, really the, the piece de resistance, the, the, the crowning glory of these, three, of these three stories, the story that we know as the prodigal son the story of the lost son. Uh, right now, I'm going to read this story to you. It's quite a long story, so um, uh, just read along with me as I read from Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast 
and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found Now, I doubt that there's anybody in the audience today listening to this passage that's not heard that story before. If so, then you're in a very small minority of people. This story is one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament, one of the favorites of the teaching of Jesus. And perhaps because of that, we may look at the story and wonder what fresh insight what fresh revelation we can get from it on this new reading. Well, I have no idea what it is that God's going to speak to your heart. God caused these words to be written by his Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture. And by his Spirit right now, I'm convinced that he will speak to you a fresh word. He will give you fresh bread for the journey. But as I've thought about it and and considered what it is that God is about, I thought that perhaps the best way that that I could deal with this passage is to assume that this story is a familiar landscape to all of us. And today what I will do is I will traverse the landscape of this story with you once again. And I'll do it on more than one occasion. The first path that I'll choose to follow as we look at this story again is to look at it from the point of view of the first hearers. What was it that they first heard and how might they have responded to these words that they heard from the lips of Jesus? They heard, of course, that the story was set in their world, a world that was, of course, familiar to them. And in the story, there is a wealthy landowner. We know that because there is a significant amount of property to be divided between the two sons. This man has two sons, and in the world of Jesus, in the world of his audience, two sons would have the property divided quite differently. The older of the two sons, especially if that if that older son was the firstborn son, the older of the two sons would have two-thirds of the property given to him at the death of the father or at the point that the property is distributed. 
So the firstborn son always receives a double portion. And if you look at Scripture and you, and you follow the, the paths of, of Scripture, you'll, you'll know that, that in different places in biblical history, you'll see the double portion emerging. When Jacob was dividing his property to his 12 sons, he chose to identify his 11th born son, Joseph, as if he were the firstborn son. He'd been treating him in that way even as a young boy. But now on his deathbed, because of Joseph's particular role within the unfolding work of God in this first family of faith, Jacob, uh, Jacob takes his property, divides it equally among his sons, except that Joseph gets a double portion. And so his two sons, Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, become the recipients of the same amount of distributed wealth as the 11 sons of Jacob. The grandsons get the same amount. And that's why throughout the whole of the Old Testament, you rarely hear of the tribe of Joseph. Rather, you hear of the half-tribe of Manasseh and of the half-tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim becomes a significant name, a, sig a significant role in the life of, of the Old Testament people of God. And so we, we know that the people as they're listening would have a cultural reference to the story that's being uh, unfolded for them by Jesus. The older son would get a double portion. The younger son would get a single portion. But they would be shocked to hear the younger son demanding a distribution of the property before the father is on his deathbed. The younger son is effectively saying, in the minds of the contemporary hearers, that really he feels as though it's about time his father died. It would have been shocking, unthinkable. And, and when we say it out loud, even today, we would find it unthinkable also. The younger son gets his property together. He denudes the family of its wealth and status and goes off to a foreign country. Again, in the minds of the hearers who first heard this story, it would be a Gentile land, a land that would be far less significant than the land of Israel, the land that God had given to the people. This, this land that he went to, this foreign land, would be a land that would have all kinds of attractions, but could never in any way compare with the value of the land that he left. And there in that land, in the midst of his wild living, something begins to happen. And again, in the minds of the popular culture at the time of Jesus, everyone would assume that God has done something that is really quite shocking. Famine has come on the land. Maybe, maybe some of those who are listening are, are saying, well, that's obviously expected and legitimate given that these are wayward, ungodly Gentiles. 
and that this young man has identified himself with them, he falls under the same judgment and famine comes to him as well as them. And so in the minds of the first hearers, this young man who's identified himself with people who live outside of the land, with people who are not part of the people of God, now is suffering the just deserts, the, the, the just penalty for identifying himself with godless people. And his decline into poverty and starvation is a decline that would be expected by most of the people who were listening, especially the Bible scholars and the professional clergy. And there, in his difficulty, he decides to go back. Repentance, of course, is a familiar theme to the people of God down through the centuries. And so they're understanding what it is that this young man is doing. Maybe like David, he's turning back on what it is that he's done. Maybe like many of the other great heroes of faith, he realizes that the path that he's been pursuing is not the path that God wants him to be on. And so he begins his long journey home. But then the contemporary audience would be surprised by what Jesus then relates. The father is waiting for the son. A son who has wished him dead. And not only waiting, but when he sees him, he's filled with compassion. And a man with honor and status, a man who, because of that honor and status, would reveal that status by the size of his girth, would run through the fields of his property towards his son, it's unthinkable. Nobody in the position of the father at the time of Jesus would ever sully his dignity to such a degree that he would run through his fields towards a wayward son. And then he throws all caution aside and embraces him and kisses him. And as he's listening to the son's repentant sermon, his statement, his speech, he doesn't allow the son to get to the end. And without judgment and without comment, he calls a servant who no doubt is shocked that the old man is running across the fields and has pursued him, wondering what on earth could be, could be happening for the old man to be running in such a way. The servant is told to go and get the symbols of sonship, a cloak that perhaps would be woven with the family colors like the coat that Joseph wore, a ring that would perhaps bear, maybe in our minds we would understand it to be the coat of arms, but of course in those days it would simply be an insignia that identified that this is a member of the family and a member of the closest circle of this family. And shoes, because only slaves walk around barefooted. The fatted calf that has been 
that has been prepared for days of celebration is taken and prepared for the feast. This would be utterly shocking to the audience, whether they were the religious audience or whether they were considered to be the rebellious audience. This would be unsettling. Now people would be off balance as they're listening to Jesus. And as the story continues to unfold and the older son comes into the scene, steps onto the stage, his reaction is entirely justifiable. And again, the father, who in a way at first perhaps was considered to be a peripheral character, now appears to be more and more the central player, does exactly what he did with the younger son. He goes out to the fields. Now normally in those days, the the head of the household would call for people to come to him. But on two occasions now, this same father has gone out to his sons to entreat them, to plead with them. The older son, immobilized by his anger, is unable to celebrate. Describing himself not as a son but as a slave. Speaking of how he has honored his father and kept the commandment to to obey him. And the father makes it absolutely clear that the distribution of wealth in his heart and mind has already taken place, and it was a final act on the part of the Father. Everything I have is already yours. But this son of mine, not this this son of yours, which of course the older brother describes him as, as he details his sinfulness. This son of mine, who the Father has not spoken judgment over at all. This son of mine was dead and is alive again, and so we had to celebrate. These things would have shocked the first hearers. And if they began to realize after the third telling of lostness that what Jesus was doing was revealing how he portrayed in his life the character and the disposition of God, who Jesus called Father, then people would be scandalized. Whether they be religious or rebellious, whether they be amongst the marginalized or a member of the inner circle, they would be shocked by the way that Jesus was speaking. Now, perhaps... Many of you would really understand and identify with all of those things because you've studied the text and you've looked at it and you've maybe even taught it to others, your children, your house churches, people who've been seeking after God. But let's take another path across this familiar story. Let's go through this landscape now so familiar to as we can see all the landmarks on this trail. Let's take another path. 
not the path of the culture and the audience in the day of Jesus. But let's try to plot a path across this story from the perspective of our own experience right now in the midst of this crisis that all of us are shaken by, that all of us have been caught off balance by. How do we understand this story from that perspective? Well, of course, there are in the audience of Jesus retelling this story different kinds of people. But most certainly, in the audience that is hearing this story afresh, there are deeply religious people and others who have taken the path of rebellion. We look at the younger son and we think to ourselves, how he is spoiled and entitled and foolhardy. Perhaps we, we look at the older son and we say, well, he's not entitled, but boy, is he enmeshed in all the baggage of his religious observance and legalism. He may not be, he may not be foolhardy, but he's gripped somehow by fear of doing the wrong thing. All these years, I've done everything you've said, and I've never once stepped off the path by asking for anything for myself. The mechanism of legalism creates fear. I wonder which of these sons we identify with. The foolhardy, the fearful, the religious, the rebellious. Which of these is our likely candidate with which we identify? Are we the ones that others would describe as entitled or enmeshed in our familiar patterns. When we look at a story like this, of course, we're expected to embrace the identity of one of the characters. And as we see the story unfold again, we, we find ourselves being drawn to and attracted to one or other of the characters. And perhaps we misunderstand the way that we view or position ourselves to the other characters in the text. If we're honest, would we find ourselves to be those right now who are gripped by fear? Perhaps right now we wonder whether we'll ever come out of our homes whether we'll ever be comfortable being in a crowd again. Perhaps right now we think about the path 
of observance that we're going to have to follow as we wash our hands continuously and wear our masks so that we don't spread the virus. Maybe, maybe we call that responsibility, and no doubt it is. But responsibility and fear are only different in the heart of the person. And so maybe if we're honest, there are some amongst us who are genuinely fearful about the future. Maybe there are others who, some would say, are just being foolhardy. They don't care about the restrictions. They're not interested about what other people say. They, they think it may well be a huge conspiracy anyway. We might find ourselves on the margins of respectable society where everyone else is wearing a mask because, of course, you're supposed to be at least disposed well to the people around you and cautious and careful about their health. And so you, like some crazy person, is, is, is not keeping the rules. I wonder which one we would find ourselves identifying with. But of course, there's another character in the story that Jesus tells. There is the character of the Father. The first scene of the story is really all about the younger son. The last scene is really all about the older son. And the middle part of the story is really how the father interacts with his two boys. Now, anyone will tell you that when you're constructing a story, there's always a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you want to know really what the story is all about, don't ask yourself what's happening at the beginning, and don't ask yourself how the story resolves. Ask yourself what happens in the middle. And who is the principal protagonist? Who is the main character in the, in the second act of the play? And it's then, of course, that we realize that the story is not about two boys. It's not about two children. It's not about two dispositions to the world. It's about a father who loves all his children. And how does the father act? He's very clear, isn't he? He does the same thing with both sons. You know, in a time like this, in a time of crisis, leadership is defined by a clarity of purpose and by a non-anxious presence. That non-anxious presence is so clearly evident in the Father. He's not anxious to hear the complete story, the, the, complete, the complete speech of the younger son. He's not anxious or angry with the oldest son as he's immobilized in the field. 
He is clear. He is consistent. He does the same thing. And so identifies himself as the leader. The leader is the one who does the same thing because that person is driven by the same purpose. And their non-anxious presence communicates something else about them. The father is non-judgmental. It would be so easy for this parent to correct both boys. And maybe as we listen to the story again, we think of ourselves wanting to correct one or the other. Maybe we want to correct the rebellious one. Or maybe we want to clip the wings of the religious one. And maybe that gives us an idea of which of those characters we're most identifying with. But the main character is the father. The father who is looking out for his children. He's looking to the horizon and sees his younger son a long way off. In the midst of the revelry and the celebration, he's conscious that his older boy is not present. He takes the initiative with both young and old. He goes out into the field for both of them. Both of these boys wondering what they can do, how they can rehearse their speech as they respond to the circumstances that have overwhelmed them. The father in his compassion goes towards both of them without judgment and frankly with very little comment other than the comment of a loving father who celebrates his family being back together again. This main character, Tim Keller called the prodigal God, this main character is the one who teaches us what we need to know about our Father God. There's another journey, just briefly. We've taken the path of the first audience. We tried to think through some of the cultural mores and, and influences that would have swayed the crowd as Jesus was speaking. We've placed the story in our contemporary scene amidst the pandemic that we're in, and we've thought through our reactions to the world that we're encountering right now, and perhaps our reaction to the other sibling. And we've looked at the father. But you see, there's another son in this whole scene. And I want to ask him, where would he want us to go? You see, the story says that there are two sons and those two sons are the sons of a father who depicts for us a God who is in heaven, who Jesus describes as father. But there is a son who's telling the story. There's a third son. And the third son wants to take our hand 
and lead us through this story so that it becomes personal to us. He wants to take our hand, whether we be more likely to be the younger or the older sibling in the story. He wants to take our hand, and he wants to help us understand how we can know the Father, how we can connect with the Father, how we, how we can be with the Father, because it's the third son who knows how to make that happen, because he's the one who will pay the price for it to happen. In the ebb and flow of life, we may find ourselves from time to time taking up a different disposition towards God, similar to the two sons. Sometimes we'll be pursuing things with such a determination that one day we look around and we find that we're a long way off from where we used to be with God. One of the great tragedies is that that can happen as we pursue ministry or our Christian calling. Our Father gives us a sense of purpose. He, he gives us a sense of calling. And we begin to pursue that calling and leave Him behind because we want to pursue it at the pace that suits us rather than at the pace that the Holy Spirit sets. And we find ourselves way, way off in the borderlands of burnout. And we have to come back. And perhaps we have to deal with the fact that somehow we've pursued these things that were godly to the point where the effect of them is unhealthy. Sometimes we found ourselves so trapped by our fear of disapproval, by any small affirmation that is withdrawn from us, that we're unable to move. And so we find ourselves left behind when the celebration is moving on. And we look around and we say, why is everybody so happy? What is it that everybody's so excited about? Maybe in the midst of what we've struggled through together as a church in this last season, you found yourself mourning a past that has now gone. And you wonder why it is when people, as they have in the past, and we surely will do very soon in the future, as people gather for celebration, that they seem so excited. Don't they realize how much pain you're in? How much you've lost? Could be that in the midst of the grief of a world that seems now so far distant from us, the pre-pandemic world, that we find ourselves grieving that world. And it's frozen us. And it's caused us to be immobilized in our grief. What does Jesus do in the midst of what it is that we're wrestling through? 
This is not what other people are doing. This is what you and I are doing right now. Jesus reaches out a scarred hand and says, come with me. Come with me into into the landscape of this story and let me reintroduce you to someone who's really important. A father who's been waiting. A father who's been watching. A father who's noticed that you're not around in the celebration. A father who in Jesus right now is taking the initiative to come to you because maybe you don't know how to come closer to him. In his grace, he's not requiring of you to put the energy in to reconnect with him. He'll do it for you. And when he comes, he will do this more than anything else. He will reaffirm to you that you and even the people that you judge are his children. And that his heart, his father's heart for his children is equal for you as it is for all of his children, even his son Jesus, who he was prepared to give up so that you could have this relationship with him, so that I could be close to him today. This Jesus, who takes us into this story, helps us to understand that God knows about the ebb and flow of our life. He knows how sometimes we're, we're drawn away, how sometimes we're frozen in our fear, in our grief. Jesus knows. And in this moment, he takes us on that personal path to meet the Father afresh. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love Jesus, that he made it possible for us to know God and in whatever circumstance we face, we can be close to him because as we accompany Jesus, he'll lead us to him either for the first time or for the umpteenth time. It is with confidence that we come into the presence of the living God because of the blood poured out for us from the life of Jesus. And it's in his death that we find salvation. And in his death we find forgiveness. And in his death we find restoration. And in his death we find reconnection. And in his resurrection we find all of the celebration of heaven and a new life worth living. Those folks that we know who do not have this relationship are longing for something like this. We don't have data 
about our own nation here in the U.S., but, but where I come from, they have, they have begun to gather data on people's reaction to the crisis. In a nation where in Britain less than 2% of people go to church on a Sunday, 25% of the population have logged on to services online and found other ways of connecting with worship experiences. In a nation where perhaps atheism was growing at a faster rate than almost anything else, 20% of the population say they pray regularly now, something that they never used to do. If that's true of my old country, I'm sure it's true here. What does this world need? It needs children who know their father. Children who have followed the son of the father into fellowship with the father. The world needs children who can help others find a relationship with our father and be part of the family with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the depth and the wonder of this story retold so many times. We thank you, Lord, that this story is fresh for us today as it ever was. And Lord, whichever of these siblings represents us, we thank you, Father, that you're making and taking the initiative right now and coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we receive your Spirit. We receive you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, Lord, are grateful that you've drawn us closer still. Use us, Lord, to draw others and to celebrate with heaven what it is that you've achieved in making it possible for us to know you. Lord, we love you, and we pray, Lord, that this week in the ebb and flow of our life, you would, Lord, by your Spirit, continue to draw us closer, because we ask it in the strong name of Jesus, and all God's people say, Amen. Well, we have been talking a great deal as leadership and eldership here at Apex about how we should respond. And we're going to take all of the best advice that's available. But right now, there is the very strong possibility that we're all praying towards that the last Sunday in May will be a time when we can safely gather. We'll have to do things like social distance and cleansing stations and all that kind of thing. But it looks as though we'll be able to join the other churches in Dayton and gather again together. Pray with us that that's a possibility. And pray too that the Lord uses this time to do the thing that he wants most in our lives, which is a close and intimate relationship with him. God bless. We'll see you next time.